If you have your Bible, open up to Hebrews chapter 13. We'll be in verses 1 through 9. And uh, we are getting close to the end of Hebrews here. Chapter 13 is the last chapter. Uh, We'll get about halfway through it tonight, and then in a couple of weeks we will uh, finish it up. All right, uh, Hebrews 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Would you pray with me? God, we're grateful for your son, Jesus Christ. That in him we have eternal life that is everlasting. That through him and because of him, your spirit lives in us so that we might obey you, so that we might know you. God, we pray that we would listen to the voice of your spirit as we pursue the calling you have placed on our life to reflect Jesus Christ and to share him with the world. Father, we um, thank you for your word. We pray as we study it, you really would help us to understand what it means. I pray, uh, clear up any confusion or doubt in our mind. Allow us to believe it fully. And Lord, allow us to obey. I pray that the truth of the word would not just be in our minds, but also in our hearts, and it would transform us and allow us to transform the communities in which we live and the people who live around us. Thank you, Father, for this time, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think one of the biggest challenges that we face as just people is how do you balance a life that is filled with both truthfulness and love? Because right, if you love somebody, you don't always want to hurt them by saying things that are extremely direct but unkind. But on the other hand, if you do love them, you want to tell them the truth if there's an area in which a person needs to change. You don't want a person to go on uh, believing something about themselves that is false and damaging. And so figuring out how to balance love and truth is one of the more difficult tasks that we have. And uh, I think that's part of the human condition. And I believe that because I see it on American Idol. Uh, When you watch uh, American Idol, some of you have watched this, you see this tension at work in the human condition. Um, You'll see people come in, contestants come in, and they believe that they can sing, and they've believed this their whole lives. And uh, many of them come in, and they've got a parent or a friend or another relative who has told them their whole life that they can sing, that they are destined to be a star. And then they open their mouth, and they begin to sing, and you realize you can't sing. And somebody's been telling you something because they don't want to be unkind, but in reality, they've been extremely unkind to you, right? Because they've not told you the truth, 
Right, so you've got these parents or friends that uh, say things that are not true because they believe that's what love is. On the other hand, you have, especially on the older versions of the show, some of the judges who are blunt and truthful to the point of unkindness. Right? Uh, most people who've watched it uh, remember Simon Cowell, who just left a season or two ago, but he was known for being excessively blunt and truthful to the point of unkindness. He seemed to delight in uh, smashing people's dreams. Uh, I ran across some of the uh, best quotes from him on the show this past week. Here are a few of them. First one, if you would be singing like this 2,000 years ago, people would have stoned you. Uh, you sounded like Cher after she's been to the dentist. I'm not sure what that means, but it sounds mean. Uh, my advice would be, if you want to pursue a career in the music business, don't. You sounded like Dolly Parton on helium. Uh, that one actually makes a little more sense to me. Uh, if your lifeguard duties were as good as your singing, a lot of people would be drowning, all right? All right, so here's a guy that seems to take delight in sharing the truth and sharing it in such a way that uh, he hurts people. And it's difficult to, to balance, how do I tell the truth and yet also be loving? And this is one of the challenges we face also as Christians, because we have the truth of Jesus Christ, and if we believe that it is only in Jesus Christ that a person has eternal life, how do we share that without sounding like jerks? How do we live that out? How do we live out the love of Jesus Christ when we have a truth that seems very narrow? And this is one of the challenges, if you've been following the news lately, uh, perhaps you've seen, this is one of the challenges that the Christian church in this country is facing even right now. Uh, there's a man named Rob Bell. Some of you are familiar with Rob Bell. He's a mega church pastor up in the north. And uh, he has written uh, a new book called Love Wins. And in the book, he challenges the concept of hell and he challenges the concept that it's only in Jesus that a person can have eternal life. And what he essentially says is anybody who would preach that it's only in Jesus, that person must not love others. Anybody who would preach that a person who doesn't believe in Jesus is going to hell, that person must be unloving. And so he sees no way to reconcile the great love of God and love of his people with a message that is narrow that says only in Jesus Christ can you have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. And so his answer to the tension is to say, I'm going to change or transform certain aspects of the message of the Bible. All right, so how do we balance love and truth? Well, as we look at the book of Hebrews, what we're going to see is that the answer is not to speak truthfully and be unkind, and the answer is not to jettison parts of the scripture, but the answer is to live in light of the expansive and boundless and infinite love of God in Jesus Christ, demonstrating that love to others, and yet still cling fast to the truth of God in Jesus Christ. And to preach about a God who loves the world so much that he gave his only son to die, for those who are destined for an eternity apart from him. And not only do we preach that, but we live it in the way we treat others, in the way we care for the suffering, in the way we even treat our own bodies and the communities around us. All of these are expressions of the love of God in Jesus Christ. The early church really was not subject to the accusation that they were unloving or unkind, even though they preached an exclusive gospel. And the reason is because with their actions in their life, they demonstrated love to such a degree that people couldn't say, these are angry, mean, unkind people. It was evident in their lives and in their hearts that they loved those around them. 
As we've been walking through the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews actually has been making a case for the exclusivity and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. His case all the way through has been, only in Jesus Christ can you find life eternal. Only in Jesus Christ will you find heavenly reward. Only in Jesus Christ will you find purpose and significance in this life. And to walk away from Jesus Christ and go back to the life you once knew, which for them was Judaism, to go back to that life would be devastating. Because you would forfeit certain privileges and rights and rewards that come to those who are faithful. Because you could expose yourself to the judgment of God now and in the future. And so to walk away is devastating. And so he's been arguing for the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Pursue that path and cling tight to it. But what's interesting here in chapter 13, what we're going to see is the practical outflow of clinging to Jesus Christ. Is a love that is huge and massive and infinite. A love that reflects the character of Jesus Christ. And so I love this passage because he weaves these concepts of truth and love together. And for the author, there's no conflict between the two of them. Both can and ought to exist in the life of a believer who believes in the truth of Jesus Christ. And in fact, that truth motivates us to an even deeper love. And so that's where we're going to go in this passage is to see how can we balance truth and love in light of Jesus Christ. He's going to begin by talking to us about how can we love the family of God if we believe in Jesus Christ. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 to start here. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. He begins by saying, let brotherly love continue. Uh, This in the Greek is the word Philadelphia, which we have a city named after, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And it has the idea of the kind of love that you would demonstrate to people in your family. This was one of the stunning things about the early church. They didn't just demonstrate an expansive great love toward those in their own family, their own blood family. Instead, they viewed everybody in the body of Christ as a part of their family. And they shared their homes, they shared their possessions, they shared their time and their lives with these men and women that they viewed as their expanded family. This was a revolutionary and radical idea. Because most of the culture said the only people you share those things with are your blood relatives. He says, so that kind of love, let that love continue. And and that love is evidenced in four specific ways as he walks through the passage. And the first one is hospitality. Practice hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Hospitality has the idea of you share your home, you share your possessions, you share your life with other people. You let them come into your home and you provide them with shelter. You provide them with food. And in the early church, there were many um, itinerant teachers. There were also refugees from persecution that would come into a town and they would need a place to stay. And the temptation was to say, no, this is my house. It's my place, my time, my space. And our author says, no, in light of the truth of Jesus Christ, God gave his son for you. You can share your home with somebody else. And the rationale that he gives is that by doing so, some people have entertained angels without even knowing about it. If you go back to Genesis 18, you see that Abraham and Sarah entertained a couple of angels. A couple of angelic messengers came to their home. They fed them. They provided them with uh, shelter from the heat. And they took care of them. And they turned out to be messengers who were proclaiming to them the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And without knowing it, they were entertaining messengers of God. And the idea is this. You never know If the person that you are serving 
is a person that God has sent for you to serve. Is a person that God has sent for you to demonstrate the love of God in Jesus Christ. You never know who's there. So he says, you open up your home. And the, the idea behind hospitality is, is even deeper than just having people over for a meal. What it ultimately is, is the idea that my home, my stuff, my car, my possessions, they don't really belong to me. They belong to God. God gave them to me. And so as a believer in Jesus Christ, I recognize that, uh, you know, it's not mine in the first place. I'm not going to take it with me so I can share it with other people. Again, this was a stunning aspect of the early church. They didn't cling to their stuff or their houses, but they shared it. Lucian was a satirist in the first century who, a guy that made fun of just about everybody and uh, Christians included, but he has a little paragraph about Christians in which he says this, their first lawgiver persuaded them. They are all brothers of one another after they have transgressed once and for all by denying the Greek gods and by worshiping that crucified sophist himself and living under his laws. Therefore, they despise things indiscriminately and consider them common property, receiving such doctrines traditionally without any definite evidence. So if any charlatan and trickster able to profit by occasions comes among them, he quickly acquires sudden wealth by imposing on simple folk. All right, Lucian is making fun of the Christians, but even in doing so, here's what he says. These are men and women that they look at their stuff and they say, you know what, this stuff really isn't all that important. He says they despise things indiscriminately. And anybody comes among them and they say, sure, you can stay in my home. You can use the things I have. Because God gave them to me and they belong to him. And uh, if you're like me, I, I, I know I struggle sometimes with this concept. I, I like to cling to the things that I have, right? Maybe, you know, think about your favorite thing that you have. Maybe it's your car, maybe it's your house, maybe it's your clothes. Maybe it's a particular salsa you really like, you know, whatever it is. There's something that you love and you don't want to share. And so you spend eight to 10 hours a week buffing and waxing that car and you get it just right. You vacuum the inside and then someone comes in and sits down with a bag of Cheetos and you have a stroke, right? And the reason is because at the core of your being, you love that car more than you love the person. You love your space more than you love the other person. You love your home more than you love the other person. And so hospitality ultimately is, you know what, I love you And I love Jesus Christ more than I love this thing. And this is a challenging concept for me as well. I'm typically the kind of person that if you were to come into my home for a party, my wife likes to host people. Uh, If it hits about 9.15 or 9.30, I'm probably going to start giving you hints that it's time to go, right? And maybe I'll say, you know, you look really tired. Maybe you need to go get a nap, something like that, right? I can remember distinctly in college one time, my roommates had some friends over and a number of friends were over and there was this one guy that stayed for hours after the party was over. And uh, we kind of kept giving him hints and he didn't leave. And so finally, we literally uh, got into our pajamas and uh, began to get into bed. And uh, he was still talking and uh, he followed us into our room. We're climbing into bed and he's still talking, right? And I'm getting angrier. And finally I said, hey, you know, go home. (laughs) The party's over. It's done. It's done right? Because I need my time. I need my space. And so I'm that kind of person sometimes, and maybe you relate. And so it's a challenge for me to share that space and time with other people. And yet the Lord has, over the course of my life, continually challenged and pressed me in that area to break me of this love for my stuff, 
Several years ago, we had a friend who had just kind of recently graduated from college and gone through our internship program, and she was going to be around for three or four more months, and she needed a place to live, and she was having a hard time finding a place, having a hard time finding a job, and uh, she was close to our family, and so my wife and I prayed about it, and uh, we made the decision that we were going to let her live in our home for three or four months, and uh, I have to tell you, it was a struggle for me to do that come home from work and I'm ready to rest and there's a person that isn't a part of my family sitting on my sofa watching a show I don't like, eating the chips that I do, right? And I I struggled with that because I needed that time. And yet over the course of that time, the Lord began to slowly convict me, it's not your time. It's not your space. It's not your stuff. So hospitality is an evidence that, you know, I love you more than I love the thing, my home. So he says, continue to practice hospitality toward one another. Another way we show love is by helping the suffering. Verse three, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. All right, in the early church, there were many men and women who were imprisoned because of their testimony for Jesus. They would proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and as a result would go to jail. And uh, there's a story that Lucian, that satirist I read from a moment ago, he tells the story of one man in the early church that actually went to prison and uh, the other Christians did everything that they could to get this guy released. When they couldn't get him released, uh, in order to identify with him in prison, what they did was they would go to the guards and they actually bribed the guards so that they could spend the night in his cell with him to encourage him. And they'd bring him the communion meal and share it with him. And they'd worship with him and they included him as a part of the body of Christ, as a part of the community. Just because he was physically absent, they didn't forget him. Just because he was suffering and in jail, they didn't cast him aside. And I think what our author here is saying is that when we care for those who are weak, who are hurting, who are suffering, when we care for those that we really benefit nothing from caring for them, That demonstrates the love of Jesus, right? Because what did Jesus do for us? Jesus died for us and rose again so we could have life. At the time, it it benefited him little, yet it benefited us greatly. So he says, when we think about those who are hurting, those who are weak, whether they're here or whether they're on the other side of the world, we're reflecting Jesus Christ. And I think it's very easy for us to get into our routine and our rhythm and forget about the fact that there are people still today around the world, there are men and women who are going to prison because of their testimony for Jesus Christ. There are men and women who are being beaten. There are men and women even who are being martyred because of their testimony for Jesus Christ. Can I, can I pray for them? Can I give to help them? Right? There are organizations that can help us do that. At some point, I'd encourage you to go to persecution.com. It's the website of the Voice of the Martyrs. And they do a great job of kind of cataloging where Christian persecution is taking place around the world. And they give you opportunities to help, to give, to pray, to serve our hurting brothers and sisters around the world. Not to mention those that are here among us, that are hurting physically, emotionally, spiritually. And again, I think we often just, we're busy We don't want to get involved. It's going to be too much trouble. Most of us are familiar with the story that Jesus tells in Luke 10 of the Good Samaritan. There's a man walking down the road and he gets attacked and beaten and left on the side of the road for dead. And a priest comes by and sees him, but the priest doesn't want to become unclean. And so he walks way around him, doesn't help him. Levite comes by, Levite, same thing, doesn't want to become unclean, doesn't want to get involved, walks way around him. And then a Samaritan 
the hated half-breed, walks by and he picks the guy up, bandages his wounds, sets him on his own donkey, takes him to a hotel, pays for the hotel, tells the innkeeper, I'm going to come back and pay the rest of the bill, whatever it is. And then he leaves him there. Jesus says, which one was a neighbor? The one who was too busy, the one who had his own thing going on, or the one who stopped and helped the hurting person. One of them reflected the love of God because he helped the suffering. I saw a uh, special on television a few years back where uh, this news program decided that they were going to recreate the Good Samaritan in modern day terms. And so what they did was they called a bunch of job applicants to a studio and they told them that they were going to be applying for a spot on television. And what the spot was, their audition was, they had to read and talk about the story of the Good Samaritan from Luke 10. So they gave it to them, they had them read it, they talked about it, and then they said, okay, go over to this other building uh, about a half mile away, and uh, you're going to sit in front of the camera, you're going to talk about the Good Samaritan. So they left the one building, they walked over to the other. Well, about halfway there, uh, the producers had planted a person, an actor, who looked like he was bruised up and beaten and he's holding his head and he's going, oh, like that as they're walking by and rocking back and forth. And the the question was, who's going to stop and help this guy? After having just read The Good Samaritan, who will help the guy and who will walk on by? Well, about 70% of them just kept walking. Even after they just read it, they looked over, they saw him and they just kept going. About 30% of them stopped. Of the ones who kept walking and walked on by. The majority of the ones who walked on by were those that had been told in the first room, by the way, you're running a couple of minutes late. You may want to hurry. And so in their hurry to get the job they really wanted, they left this guy to suffer. Others said, I just didn't want to get involved. Others said the guy looked scary. And so they just left him there. And what, what Hebrews tells us is that a reflection of the love of Jesus Christ is the person who stops who gets outside of our own routine and our own concerns and says, I'm going to help those who are hurting. Even if it costs me some time, even if I get a B on the test because I got to stay up late in the night talking to my sad roommate. Even if it means that I have to give something that I love to help those who are in need. Because we love others by helping the suffering around the world right here. All right, thirdly, uh, we love others by remaining pure. Verses four, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now this is interesting. In the midst of talking about loving and helping others, he stops and he talks about something that we often consider in our culture to be a private matter of personal morality. I think it's really interesting because, you know, we have liberals and conservatives in our country and liberals tend to really focus on social justice, helping the hurting and the needy and the poor. Conservatives tend to focus on personal morality and often the two are separated and it's as if you either love other people and you help the hurting and the poor or you're personally holy and righteous. And what I love about this passage is he says, no, if you're like Jesus Christ, if you are a member of the body of Christ, you're called to do both, right? And in fact, there is no such thing in the body of Christ as a matter of personal morality. Because every choice I make affects the other members of the community. And here's the issue with sexual immorality. If I step outside of the marriage bond, whether I'm married and I commit adultery, whether I'm unmarried and I commit fornication, both words are used in this passage. Either one that I do, what I'm doing is I am undermining the trust in the community. I am exposing someone else to some potential physical and emotional and spiritual consequences 
I'm exposing them to guilt. I'm exposing them to shame. I'm exposing them to all kinds of problems down the line because I care about myself more than I care about the other person and the community. And the truth is that there are irreversible consequences for sexual immorality. It is true that God forgives. It is true that you can be restored and you can still live a life in which you pursue Jesus Christ. But there, is, there are often consequences for sin that simply cannot be undone, whether they be physical or emotional or spiritual consequences. And so he says, in order to avoid those, avoid sexual immorality. See, in the context of marriage, sexuality strengthens the family. Sexuality is an opportunity for us to build healthy and strong families that build up the community of believers. But if we step outside of that, it introduces poison into the water. And it creates an environment of mistrust and guilt and shame. And so that's why he says, keep the marriage bed holy, set apart and pure. And sexuality in the right context is good, in the wrong context is devastating. You think about uh, some of the tools we use, like a chainsaw, for example. Right context, it's a great tool. I can use it to build a house. I can use it to trim a tree. I can use it to make a deck. Wrong context, it's really bad, right? I can hurt somebody pretty badly with it. It's a good tool, but I can use it to destroy. Sexuality is the same way. Think about a poppy flower. Poppy flower is a really pretty flower beautiful, right? Some of you have seen them. You can gather some up. You could give them to your mom for Mother's Day if you wanted to, right? You can take them. Even they take the opiates from them. They use, use it for medicine. They use it for morphine to ease a person's pain. In the right context, the opiates are helpful and productive, right? But you can also take thousand poppies and you can distill the opiates and you can put it in a syringe and you can inject it in your arm and you can devastate yourself with a terrible addiction, In the right context, it's a good thing. In the wrong context, it's devastating. That's the way sexual immorality is. It's a good thing in the wrong context. And it is an indication, if I'm living in sexual immorality, it's an indication that I'm not thinking about the good of the community around me. I'm thinking about my own selfish desires. So he says, honor the marriage bed, keep it holy, remain pure. Fourthly, we love God's family by avoiding greed. Verses five and six, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Right, again, greed is, is a, an indication that like, the same thing I was saying earlier, that you love your things, you love your possessions, you love your money more than you love other people. It's also an indication that you don't trust God. And so if everybody in the community begins to hoard the money that they have, what that means is they're saying, I need more and you get less. And I love this money more than I love God, more than I love his people. And so he says, be free from the love of money. And remember, God will meet your needs. As Jesus says, you seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. And the way you approach money is an indication of your attitude toward other people. If I give to missionaries so they can share the gospel, I'm indicating that I love the gospel and I love his kingdom and I love those people. If I give to those who are poor and suffering and needy, I'm indicating that I love others. Your checkbook or your online bank balance is an indication of your spiritual priorities. Whether you want to believe it or not. So he says, if you are greedy and hoarding, that means I want to take from others so they can't have. But when I'm open-handed and I say, God's given it to me, I can give it back 
to the community. I can give it back to the gospel. It indicates I love God and his kingdom and his people. Greed is a challenging thing because I think it is built into us from a young age, partly just because we're sinful people, but partly because we live in a materialistic nation. All you got to do is watch a few Saturday morning cartoons and you're going to come away wanting lots of toys. It's the same thing if you watch primetime television. You're going to come away wanting that car. That particular toothpaste is going to change your life, right? We're greedy. I can remember really distinctly when I was a kid, um, if we would get like a pie or some kind of dessert, uh, my brothers and I would fight over who got the biggest piece. And uh, some of you can remember that. So my dad devised a system whereby one of us would uh, cut the pie and the others would choose their piece. And so what would happen is the person who was cutting the pie took a long time to make sure that all the pieces were equal. You know, I, I always expected him to get out like a tape measure, you know, and measure them, make sure. Why? Because he wanted to make sure he got his share and nobody got a bigger piece than him, right? It was a way of harnessing that greed that we have into something a little bit productive, right? Because all of us are greedy because we're sinful. So our author says, instead of greed, practice the open-handedness that says, God gave it to me. Because no matter what I say about the love of God, If I'm greedy and I'm hoarding, my actions belie my words. A few years ago, there was a book that came out called The Shack, and it wasn't necessarily my favorite book. There were some problems in it from a theological perspective, but it's not really the point of this illustration. Uh, The point is this. The Shack was a book that uh, proclaimed the love of God. It proclaimed that God has this expansive, boundless love, and the author went around talking about the love of God and how it was greater than anything. And the book really caught on, and it sold millions of copies, 12 million, 13 million copies. It did really well, and, and the money began to pour in. And this author had worked together with a couple of other men in the production of this book, and now, to this day, the three of them are engaged in a vicious lawsuit over the royalties for that book that proclaims the love of God. In Jesus Christ. Greed, no matter how much I say I love Jesus, if I'm greedy, I belie what I say with what I do. So he says, yeah, avoid greed. Be open-handed with what God has given. So these four things are indications that we love God's people. We love the family of God. And the reason we do is because we cling to the truth of God in Jesus Christ. Orthodoxy meaning a right belief about who God is and who Jesus is and the fact that Jesus died for us and rose again to give us eternal life and the fact that it is only in Jesus that we have eternal life. Traditionally, that has produced men and women, actually, who love the world to a greater degree than anybody else. And it ought to. Because the gospel is the message of God's love. And so he says, as you love God's family, remember to constantly cling to the truth because it is in the truth of Jesus Christ that we are able to reflect his love. Verses seven through nine, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. So he says, go back and remember these leaders, these men and women who taught you, and remember the faith that they taught you. And remember, as he talked about in chapter 11, the outcome of their faith, that they were rewarded for it. 
And remember, if they were rewarded, God will reward you too. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be led away by something strange or diverse or new. In their day and age, people were talking about how food could make you more spiritual, eating the right foods, avoiding the wrong foods, eating your foods at certain times. And he says, look, food in and of itself does not make you spiritual. Instead, it's the grace of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. A lot of things throughout our, our, my lifetime even, in science and medicine, have become obsolete. Uh, they no longer apply. Uh, I was an engineering major, and my freshman year, they taught us how to draft with a pen and a paper, and you know all of these little deals. And I know you guys don't do that anymore, right? It'd be a huge waste of time. It's obsolete. There's ideas in science and in medicine. In medicine, you go to the doctor with a stomach ache or a headache, uh, they don't get out a razor and bleed you anymore, right? But they used to do that to release the bad humors, right? If you walked into your doctor and he said, oh yeah, you've got some bad humors, I'm gonna cut you. You'd go find another doctor, right? But that's what they used to believe, right? Used to believe that the earth was the center of the universe and everything revolved around it. And what I've seen is that science and medicine and all of these things, they constantly change. And what is true now in science two or three years from now will not be. Because there are new theories and there are new ideas coming out all of the time. And the wisdom of this world changes and shifts, but Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. And so just because something is new doesn't make it right. Just because somebody can present it in a clear, compelling, hip way doesn't make it true. So he says, you cling to the word of God in the scripture, which means you got to know it. You've got to be in community so that we can help one another remember what is true. Remember the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that motivates us to love. Jesus died on our behalf to pay the penalty of our sin. God loved us so much, he gave his son. Jesus rose again, defeating sin and death. And those who believe in him have eternal life. That is the message of the gospel. And maybe you're here tonight and you don't know that. You've not yet reckoned with that or believed it. So the message for you is this, that in that belief about Jesus Christ, that's where life is found and it does not change. Right? For those of us who do believe in Jesus Christ, I think the message is to cling to it with all our might and then constantly look to it as motivation for us to love others as Jesus does. And so quickly as we close, let me ask you a couple of questions. Are you lacking in either love or truth? All right, some of you, uh, you're really good at the truth thing. You, you know the Bible forwards and backwards. You study it a lot. You really know it well. And yet when you proclaim it, you walk around with your truth hammer, man, and you're ready to pound anybody that steps to the left or the right. And so you know the truth and yet you don't always do it graciously. And so you reflect the truth of Jesus Christ, perhaps, but not his love. And in doing so, you can communicate an attitude of hatred, perhaps, to those who don't know him or to those around you. On the other hand, some of you, you're you're good at the mercy and the love stuff, but you feel uncomfortable with the truth thing. And so even though someone around you may be in sin, someone around you may be devastating their life in a painful way because of sin, you never really tell them, you never really confront them, Because you say, you know, I care about them. I don't want to hurt their feelings. And maybe you need to begin to study the truth of the scripture 
and see that it's really hard to actually love someone well if you don't tell them the truth? Are you out of balance somewhere? And do you need to begin to move back toward balance of love and truth? What are some ways you can work on that? What are some ways in which you can grow? And I would encourage you this week, begin to pray that the Spirit would fill you with an understanding of the truth of God in Jesus Christ and then motivate you to go out into the world and love others with the wide, infinite, expansive love of Jesus Christ so that we can reflect a God who loves us so much he gave his Son. So that the world will look and say, man, Christians, they, they are the most loving, compassionate, kind people that I've ever seen. And it's because they have a God who gave his son. That's who we want to be. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, we do pray that you would allow us to balance your love and the truth of the scriptures. Let us not be angry or lack compassion or mercy toward those who are hurting, but Father, let us not compromise the truth, and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would make us faithful to know you, to know your word, and to obey it so that the world might come to know Jesus Christ and all he has done for us. We thank you, God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. See you all in a couple weeks.